Um, those are called the cardboard testimonies. Um, a few years ago, I got to participate in one of those, and this was my testimony. Um, that was then, and this is now. So, so uh, today, um, HL asked me over, it seems like a year ago, asked me to share my story. He said he was going to do a series of addiction on addiction. And so I've had a year to, to worry about this and, and to uh, think, how, what am I going to say or what am I not going to say? What's appropriate? How do I keep it G-rated? Um, my wife uh, gave me strict instructions on that. You know, so she knows the whole story. So um, today I'm going to try to be as transparent as I can be in the short amount of time that I've been given. Uh, it's not always um, easy uh, to be transparent, and sometimes in front of certain audiences, it's really very difficult to be transparent. Um, but the truth is, is that I uh, have suffered most of my life with the battle of addiction. And when people talk about addiction, when you say that word, the first thing they think of is that dope fiend, okay? Or, or the alcoholic or the homeless guy that's sitting in the alley somewhere dirty and, and um, smelly and, and um, alone and isolated. And although that's not part of my story, I definitely was isolated and I was alone. Uh, but today the message is hope and the promise is freedom. And uh, I, I've, uh, I lived in hopelessness for most of my life. Um, if I can make this thing, there, there it is. Uh, last week, uh, H shared this list with us. And um, I looked up there and I thought, oh my word, almost every one of those I can identify with. Almost every one of those I've lived through. Um, the substance issues, the, the misery martyrdom, the bad religion, uh, the approval addiction, the self-harm, every, almost every one of those I, is part of my story. It's a part of my experience. And so to isolate any one of those in the short time I'm given, I, I could talk for 30, 35 minutes just on those issues, any one of them. Um, so um, what I'd like to do is just kind of like start from the beginning. And uh, I've always wanted to show this picture. This was my bathroom growing up. This is where I grew up. And I, I thought today I said something to my wife. I said, you know, it's kind of sad. This is the only picture I have from my past. This is the only picture I have left uh, from, from my former life. Uh, I grew up uh, in the country. My, my parents took us out and kind of isolated us. I grew up in um, a family of five kids, uh, two step uh, siblings, and me and my brother and sister. And I grew up during a time, I, I was born in the 50s, I, I was at the end of the baby boomers, and I was born into the uh, first TV generation. And everything, um, you know, I watched everything from the Vietnam War and the, uh, the civil rights riots and the, and the, uh, the NASA uh, space program and, and when it was a big deal. And I saw the, the first man walk on the moon and, and I watched TV shows like Leave it to Beaver and Fathers Knows Best. And that was my life growing up. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, turmoil and, and fear and, and uh, um, a lot of uh, um, dysfunction within my own family because my family didn't look anything like uh, the Cleaver family in Leave it to Beaver. Uh, I looked at my brother. My brother was, uh, uh, if you watch Leave it to Beaver, my brother was um, Wally, okay? Was that his name, Wally? <laughs> 
So uh, that was my brother. My brother was this idea, uh, um, uh, or the ideal son. You know, he was the overachiever. He was the straight A student. He was the um, the very uh, popular, good-looking kid in, in school. Everybody loved him. All the teachers loved him. He did everything right. Me, I was the exact opposite. I was Beaver. I was the one that was always getting in trouble. I was the one that was always causing some kind of havoc and nothing. I was. Uh, I was Richard's little brother, and, and I never did anything right according to my parents. Um, my mom, we lived in a, um, a blended family. My mom was divorced from my dad uh, when I was very, very young. My mom never had anything positive to say about my real father. My real father was an alcoholic. He was a liar. Uh, he was worthless, and she used to tell me I was just like him. So, so from a very early age, I was given messages that said that you're worthless, that you're unworthy. And with a brother that was an overachiever, and then I'm the, on this other end, and I'm worthless and, and uh, unworthy, I, I started believing those things. I started believing those things. So by the time that I was um, 10 years old is when I started my first drug, which was tobacco. Uh, I was a, a chain smoker by the time I was 11 years old. Um, I stole my cigarettes from my neighbors. I stole them from my mom. I got them wherever I could get them, but I always had a cigarette. And uh, so by the, the time of 11, uh, I was smoking regularly. Uh, I was drinking by the time I was 12. Alcohol was available in my home. Um, there was always beer or whiskey around the house and always had a way of stealing it. Um, uh, I wasn't always drunk or, or always high, but always had a little bit of a buzz. I could get it. My parents, they drank a lot when they had people over to play cards. Um, they drank and we got to mix their drinks. So when you mix the drinks, you get a lot of opportunity to taste the drinks. And, and so always had just a little bit of a glow going. So um, by the time I was 15 years old, I was ripe for the picking. Uh, like I said, I grew up during that, that, uh, that TV generation, the 60s, the, 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 the riots, the civil rights riots, the Vietnam War. I was pretty certain that I was probably going to go to the Vietnam War because during that period of time, 68, 69, there wasn't an end in sight. And so I was pretty assured that that's where I was going. And I, I knew a lot of uh, kids, older kids that went off to war, didn't come back. Um, a lot of people that were... Um, um, well, a lot of kids my age were uh, afraid of that, that reality. So um, by the time I was 15, I was ready. And I was ready for something different. I was empty. Uh, we did go to church occasionally, and I, and I knew what the church story was, but I didn't have any kind of knowledge or relationship with Christ. And so when that first drug came along, it was a dry drug. And it was, it was, uh, it was marijuana, okay, I'll just say that. Uh, I'm not in the meeting, they say, yeah, I'm not supposed to name specific drugs, but uh, it was marijuana. So I started using marijuana, and as soon as I started using marijuana, I, I found my friend, I found my release, I found my spiritual high, and I found that void, you know, filled that void. And that worked for a short season, but it wasn't long before that, before I actually started taking pills. And so by the time I was uh, a junior in high school, I was a fairly proficient user of drugs, I, alcohol, tobacco, LSD. I loved hallucinogenics, anything that would keep me awake. I hated to sleep. I couldn't stand my dreams. I hated my home life. Uh, so... Uh, 
hallucinogenics took me into that fantasy world that I usually lived in because living out in the country, I had a lot of opportunity to escape and escape into the woods and, and be away from my family. As you can see in that picture, there was a lot of woods behind us. There was actually over 500 acres of woods back behind that, uh, that outhouse. And again, that was my bathroom. We lived in a house that didn't have a bathroom. We, lived, we had no running water until I was in the seventh grade. Uh, I had to, one of my jobs was to carry water into the house. Now, we weren't living in the hills of Tennessee down in Appalachia, you know, back in, you know, somewhere where civilization hadn't reached yet. We lived on a major highway in Morgan County, Indiana, where our neighbors had running water. Uh, they had bathrooms, but we didn't. And so I thought we were poor, and we weren't. It's just the way my parents decided to raise us. So um, there was a lot of, uh, there, was, there was very little love in our home, so I didn't ever really learn what love looked like. I didn't, I didn't know what, how love felt. I never believed my mother when she said she loved me because she divorced my father, all right? And she told me I was just like him, so why would she love me? And I fought that battle all the way to her death. Uh, Any time my mother would say she loved me, it was almost like uh, uh, fingernails down a chalkboard to me. For those of you who don't know what chalkboard is, uh, <laughs> they don't have those anymore, do they? Uh, can you do fingernails down a whiteboard? I don't know. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a very grating sound to me. And, in, and even though I, years later I, I tried to deal with those issues that I had with my mother, that still was one that I struggled with, was really internalizing the fact that she loved me. Um, we were, um, um, early on in my life, I was sexually abused. Uh, I was put in foster care early on, and uh, I was sexually abused there. When I was brought back into the home with my stepfather and my mother, I was physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I watched my mother break my little brother's arm because she was untied. Uh, I watched her beat my stepsister half to death because she didn't want oatmeal for breakfast. Um, you know, and that's not including the, the, the whippings and the, and the discipline that I took on for my own self, for my stepfather. My stepfather played me against my stepbrother, and my, my mother played my stepbrother against me. And so it was this constant battle inside of our home. And it was, it, there was not a whole lot of loving there. Uh, I do have some good memories that, that I can say, you know, I, had a, I thought I was having a good time in life. I just thought what we were doing was normal. Uh, even though that's not what I've seen on TV, uh, I thought that was a fantasy world, and I would fantasize about that kind of a lifestyle. But by the time I was 15, I was an emotional uh, wreck, and I was definitely a rebel. Uh, I didn't want to be in school anymore. Um, my brother was very successful in school. I was uh, very much a failure in school. Uh, the only thing that I did accomplish in school was actually graduating by the by the skin of my teeth. And somehow or another, I even managed to become the president of my senior class. Still, I don't figure out how that happened, but that's, that's the truth. And, and the principal of my school said, you are the worst example of a, of a president of a high school class that we ever, that he ever knew. And I said, thank you. You know, I did. I, I literally said, thank you. I wrote on my senior prophecy that I wanted to write a book and I wanted to be a drug addict. That was on my senior prophecy. They didn't stick it in the yearbook. They kept mine out. Um, so I, I had become at that point that drugs were my way of life. And, and I, I could not foresee a time in the future where drugs would not be part of my life. 
and so by the time I was um, in my 30s, um, I couldn't live without them, but I couldn't live with them either. I came to a point of being so, I, I was, I'd become an IV drug abuser, and I wasn't just using uh, street drugs. Uh, I wasn't using stuff that people called clean drugs. I was mixing my own drugs. I had learned to make a concoction out of muriatic acid and, a, and a, a cold medicine, and I could take that, and I could mix that together, and I could cook it up in about 15 minutes, and I could inject it into my body. And that's where that kind of that self-harm thing came in because this stuff was burning holes in my body. At one time, I had 96 open ulcers in my body from shooting up dope. That is the insanity of addiction, okay? Addiction is, oops, sorry. Uh, addiction is, a, uh, an addict is in the grip of a hopeless dilemma and the effects that affects the mind, body, and spirit, the solution of which is spiritual in nature. I didn't have a spiritual lifestyle. I didn't know that Christ was really there for me. I didn't know that he wanted a relationship with me. I was lost. I was completely hopeless. The only thing that I could do was continue to shoot up. In the, in the, it, it was, the insanity is, is knowing that I'm going to put a hole in my body, but I would still do it. The, the insanity was is that I knew that, that what I was doing was killing me, but yet I was still doing it. In fact, there came a point in my life where death sounded like the best way out. So I would do massive amounts of, of, of drugs at one time with the hope that it would kill me. Uh, it just never did. It never did. Um, I know I'm kind of skipping around a little bit. It, it's tough to, uh, to compact this into the short time frame because what I want to do is give you a picture of the darkness of a, a addiction. That uh, it, it's more than um, it's more than just using drugs. Uh, the the addict suffers again from a um, um, a, a mind, body, and spirit dilemma. Okay, it's not about the drugs. The drugs were a symptom of what I was suffering from. I had no self-worth. I didn't understand what love was. I didn't understand what caring for myself was. I didn't understand how uh, to care for others. Uh, I was completely and, uh, and utterly self-absorbed and self-centered. Everything was about me. Everything was about how I was a victim growing up. Um, I was legitimately victimized when I was younger, but I escaped that system when I was 17. What I did past that age of 17 was I continued to perpetrate upon myself. So everything past that point of when I escaped that system that I grew up in, I did to me. See, I can't blame it on my bosses. I want to. I did many times. I can't blame it on those bad relationships that I, were in, that I was in. I want to, but I can't because those bad relationships and those bad jobs I had were actually a result of my own behavior. All right? I have had great opportunities in my life. I've, I've had moments of success, but I always had to go back to uh, sabotaging my own life. There's a, one of those uh, captions up there was misery martyr. One of the things I learned about myself was that I'm a misery martyr. A misery martyr is someone who says that um, life's going too well. Life's going too well. So I have to yank the rug out from underneath it. So what I would do is I would self-sabotage. Um, I um, 
pretty much went to a party. I tell people I went to a party when I was 15. I didn't leave until I was 35. I was the last one there. No one else was there. I was still the only guy still shooting up, still partying, still dropping pills and, and taking acid and, and uh, um, not wanting to sleep and just let's go, let's go, let's go. Um, I wound up in a hospital in 1986. Uh, I was in a coma for two weeks. Uh, my body was uh, ravished with, with ulcers, uh, with cellulitis. Cellulitis is a, is a condition where your uh, infection of the, uh, in, in, under the skin and my arms were swollen up. They looked like lumps of wood. Uh, my hands were so swollen I couldn't move. My, my legs were so swollen I couldn't stand up. And uh, I wound up in a VA hospital in Indianapolis um, for the first time. And it was my first of 32 trips to the hospital. Um, I spent multiple trips in the hospital uh, being pumped full of antibiotics, being uh, 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 rehydrated because what I was doing was dehydrating myself. Cold medicine has a, a, a drug in it that dehydrates you. Uh, so I was literally like a, the first time I went in the hospital, I was like 119 pounds. So I, I was a, a rail. Uh, and I thought I looked good, you know. I'm like, look at me, man. I'm wearing skinny jeans and, you know, and of course they were falling off of me. Um, so I was near death and didn't even realize it. Uh, I was already spiritually dead. Um, so I, I was like a walking zombie. So I, I go to the hospital and, and they, they put me into treatment. And when I went into treatment, it was the first time that I got exposed to the 12 steps of, uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was uh, getting exposed to those, and, and I went to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and, and I kind of found my identity there, and um, it, was, um, it was the beginning of where I've landed today. So in 1986, I walked into my first NA meeting, and uh, there was a guy there that welcomed me and told me he had two years clean, and I, I thought to myself, he's a liar. He's a liar. There's no way that anybody can stay clean for two years. I couldn't even imagine that. I couldn't even fathom the, the, the concept of not using a drug of any type for a two-year period of time. All right? I couldn't even uh, envision a lifestyle that was clean. When I, when I would see people, see I was a very envious person. I would see people that were clean and, and that lived a, a successful lifestyle. I didn't get it. See, I thought that I was a victim, and I thought God had placed me into this life to punish me and to destroy me and to watch me uh, crash and burn. And um, so for someone to tell me they had two years clean, I thought he was a liar. Um, I went in and out, in and out, in and out for a long time. Um, I want to back up a little bit for a minute. Uh, when I left high school, and I left home, one of the things I first got to do was uh, I got into not a school bus, but a van, and I went to California. And uh, I got to live out there for a while and, and hang out with some pretty crazy, unsavory characters. Uh, I was hanging out with uh, some people from a commune that, that had been part of the Manson crowd, and uh, I was meeting all kinds of uh, really cool people, I thought, at the time. But it was there that I first came to the knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. It was in California on Easter Sunday of 1974 that I found out that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. Jesus is God. Jesus came to save me. Jesus came to give me a new life. That was the day that I found that out. But I didn't, 
I didn't know what to do with that information. I didn't know, I didn't get discipled. I didn't know how to grow in that, that area. So I spent the next 13 years running and, and um, kind of forgot about who God was. In 1986, when I first went to my first treatment center, God reintroduced himself to me. And it was there that, that God said, and I love the song that was sung this morning, Abba, I Belong to You. That's where God told me for the first time, I heard his voice say to me, you belong to me. You belong to me. And, and, and I remember God taking me and pushing me to the floor uh, of my room in the treatment center that I was at. And I, and I broke down crying and snotting and praying to God and asking for his forgiveness. And that was the first time that, that I remembered that 13 years ago, that he had said that he was here for me, that he died for me, that he, he, he went onto that cross and he went into that tomb and he walked out of that tomb for me. And that was the first time it became personal. Unfortunately, I can't stand here and tell you that that was the day that I got clean and stayed clean and it didn't struggle anymore. It, my struggle continued and it was because there was a lot for me to yet learn, uh, not only about who I was, but what addiction is and about who God was. See, the way I understood God then and the way that I understand God now are completely two different things. Right. It had to evolve. It had to grow. Um, see, addiction is a compulsive act of a mental obsession brought on by a total spiritual self-centeredness. And remember, I said I was totally self-centered. Life was all about me. It was about my victim status. It was about how I had been hurt and damaged. I mean, I could justify, I sit with a counselor for, for many, many, many weeks and, and, and was in, I've been through many counseling sessions, by the way, and psychiatrists and, and psychological tests and, and everything that you can think of, uh, trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, but I had one counselor who looked at me and he says, you have justified it to me. He says, there, you have completely rationalized and justified why you continue to destroy yourself. And that was, that was kind of a shocker for me because what he told me was there isn't anything he could do for me. I had built this wall so high and so thick around me that nothing could penetrate. I knew all the steps of, of, of recovery. I knew what it took to, to stay clean, but staying clean wasn't enough. Because see, addiction is more than drug use. It's more than just simply taking a drug. It's more than just simply putting a, a, a beverage into me. It's more than a behavior. It's more than uh, all those things. It's an emptiness. It's a, this God-sized hole that exists. And I had built a wall around it so nothing could get in. God couldn't get in. You couldn't get in. And I couldn't get out. I was imprisoned inside my own thoughts. All right. Because addiction is, involves more than drugs, then recovery had to involve much more than just not using. Because I started massing up some clean time. I took some time where I was abstinent from drugs, where, where I wouldn't take anything. But my sickest behaviors were when I was clean. And at the time, uh, uh, in my marriage, my, my wife at the time was she's saying, I thought you only did those things when you were using. And I'm like, I'm without excuse. So it, it was kind of like the chicken and the egg, which came first? Did the bad behavior of using drugs create the problems and the behaviors that I was doing or were the behaviors creating the drug use? I didn't know anymore. I didn't know enough about me and I didn't know enough about God. <clears throat> then I heard a speaker 
I went to a, to a, I can't even remember what it was, <laughs> but it was, it was thousands of people there, and I took a youth group there, and um, I had started going to church and being involved, and I tried social acceptability, and I kind of learned that if I put on a good skin, uh, that I could fool people, uh, even though I was still messed up inside, and I wasn't using drugs at the time, but I was still just this mess inside. Um, I went to this, I took a youth group uh, down to Gatlinburg, and there was a speaker down there, and he said this, these words right here, I believe that what I believe makes me what I am. And it was at that moment that I realized that I kept identifying myself as I am an addict. I am an addict. And, and by saying that, to me, that kept recreating that cycle. I am an addict. If I am an addict, then I'm going to do what an addict does. What does an addict do? An, an addict acts out in self-centered, mental-obsessed, physical compulsions. Okay? I'm doing things compulsively that I'm obsessing over because I'm still stuck in the self-centeredness. See, I believe God placed me into this world to be an addict. That's what I believed at that time. And, and, and so I could not get past that point because, after all, I was victimized. I had a mother that, that, that was abusive. I had a, a stepfather that, that told me I was worthless and I would never amount to anything. Uh, all those things were a part of my life, and they were valid, and I carried them with me. I just kept carrying that baggage with me. So when I learned this, and then he followed this up with this verse, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him that called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It doesn't say anything about being an addict. See, God told me that I belong to him. And it took me years to get to this point. Because, see, what I didn't do is I didn't pick this thing up right here. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is called a Bible. Okay? And in it is God's Word. And in it, it has all kinds of these verses that talk about who God says we are. And nowhere in here did it ever say to me, that I was an addict. Nowhere in there did it ever say that I could not find restoration. Nowhere in there did it say that I was worthless. Okay? God gives me value. God gives me uh, hope. God brings me reconciliation and restoration. God brings me recovery. All right? And so that's when I started doing this. I went on to a campaign of where I started writing out three by five cards, and I would write things on their Bible verses that were meaningful to me, and I would personalize them, and there's my three by five cards. And, and I would take these out on a daily basis, and I would read them, and I would write things down like, I belong to you, you know. Uh, I, I would write down verses that were meaningful to me, uh, in particular the one about Second Peter, but also a verse that became my life's prayer. This is my life's verse. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, nor take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is David's prayer to God. 
See, when I started actually looking into the stories of the Bible, I started finding out that some of these guys in the Old Testament, they were worse than I was. All right? I mean, they may not have been IV drug abusers, but I think they might have been had it been available to them. I mean, some of these guys were pretty messed up. You know, Jacob was a liar. David was a murderer and an adulterer. All right? Abraham was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. The lineage of Christ comes through Rahab. You know, I started learning. I became a student not only of recovery, but I started becoming a student of God's word and started looking into what God said about who I am. And, and see, I've learned that if you're going to make up something, if you're going to make up a story, you're not going to include people in that story like Samson. You're not going to include people in that story like David. You're not going to put uh, Abraham into that story, all right? Because these people were, were messed up people. They were some bad dudes, okay? And, and you wouldn't do some of the things that you did. Jesus uh, had a, a, a meeting with a woman at the well that, that had bad relationships, all right, not only was she part of a, of a, a culture that, that Jews didn't associate with at that time, but she was also someone that had went through multiple husbands and was living with someone that wasn't her husband at the time. But yet Jesus used her as one of the first evangelists. All right, and I'm thinking, you know, that, that he said that, if I can make it go for me. Oh, that's the wrong one. Sorry. I'll just quote it. I might not have written it out. Um, John 3.17, for the Son of Man did not come into this world to condemn the world, but to set the world free, to save the world. And, and, and I thought if he could have a relationship with David, if he could have a relationship with, with uh, Jacob, if he could have a relationship with the woman at the well, if he could look at the, the harlot that was brought to him that they wanted him to cast stones at, and he could look at her and say, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more, then he could certainly cleanse me. He could certainly change my life. So for me, I, I found my recovery not only in the 12-step programs through the secular groups of AA and NA, but I also found my Recovery grew stronger when I took the Bible, when I took the verses of God, when I took his word and I put them together and I found my freedom. See, the message of recovery is that an addict, any addict, can stop using. It doesn't say any addict but Joseph. It doesn't say any addict but you. It says any addict can stop using and find a new way to live. Right? That, that the message is hope. And the promise is freedom. See, God talks a lot about freedom. Christ talks a lot about freedom. And, and H.L. Uh, um, titled this, this series, Free to Be. And today, I am free to live in free will. I'm not living in self-will anymore. And the third step of the recovery says that we give our life and our will over to the care of God as we understand him. Today, my understanding of God is so much different than it was when I came into the program. It's so much different when I first discovered him back in 1974. Because, see, I thought he was a vengeful, angry God that wanted to keep me down, wanted to keep me oppressed, and didn't want me to have fun in life. And that's just not true. He's a graceful, loving, caring God that wants us to be free. He wants us to have a life that's abundant. And he... Uh, 
He no longer wants me to fight anger, fear, depression, guilt, shame. Did I say that one? <laughs> um, see, when we sincerely work out our recovery, when we sincerely come to him and we give our life and will over to him, we no longer fight these things. See, my life is so different today. My life is nothing like it was. I couldn't hold down a job uh, back in the 70s and the 80s. The longest job I had at that time was the military, and they just had me under contract. Uh, if I could have gotten out of it, I would. In fact, I tried a couple of times. So um, I, I couldn't hold down a job. I couldn't stay in a relationship. Uh, I was miserable all the time, uh, very unhappy, uh, lived in fantasy land. Um, I, I, my health was, was racked. It's not much better now, but it's, uh, it's definitely better than it was then. Um, I, I couldn't go uh, multiple days without using. Uh, I lived to use and used to live. Uh, that, that was my lifestyle for years. Uh, today, I have a different life. Today, uh, I've, I've graduated college in my 50s. Uh, I got a nursing degree. Uh, I hold a license in nursing in two states. Um, not working as a nurse right now, I work as a salesman, but, but I have a successful career in sales today. Uh, I get to speak uh, about my experience, strength, and hope. Um, I've, um, I've done multiple things, mission trips to, to Colombia and to, and to uh, Costa Rica and to Guatemala. Those are all things that are different than, than what it was before. And I also have this in my life today. Today, I truly have learned what it means to be joyous, that I don't have to be happy to be filled with joy, that I can be filled with joy even in the times of sorrow. Um, you know, I've um, lost my parents. All my parents are gone now. I reconciled with all of them before they passed, but I didn't handle them very well sometimes. I didn't handle my mother's death very well, and that was the time that brought me to that moment of crisis that changed my life forever. Uh, and for the better. Um, it led me to here to daylight. It led me to, to get to know people like HL and some of the friends that we have here today. Um, and today I live a, a lifestyle that's clean, but I don't live a lifestyle that's perfect. Uh, I wish I could say that I never battled with obsessive thoughts anymore, but I do. And what I've learned is, is that's not unique to someone that call, is called an addict. That is our human condition. It's who we are as people. We live in a fallen world. Nothing is perfect in this world. We, um, I ran over, <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. So I'll end it here. I'll just once again just remind you that the message of recovery is that anyone can stop using. You can cut those chains that bind you. You can find a new way to live. The message is hope, and the promise is freedom.